Welcome to the Final Draft Podcast. My name is Andrew Popel, and today I'm going to be righting some wrongs by presenting you with a conversation from 2022, a special bonus episode featuring Chris Womersley's The Diplomat. If you're here, you're a fan of the show. You might have even tuned into our last episode, which features Chris's most recent novel, Ordinary Gods and Monsters. Final Draft is all about books, writing, and literary culture, and we love Australian writing. Chris is an incredible Australian author. So I want to help you get more out of his books. Because these are, his books really are stories about who we have been across, across the 80s, 90s to today. And I, I will begin by acknowledging two SEO broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people. I record on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands, pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging these are unceded lands and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Chris Womersley's The Diplomat is a fantastic follow-up to his earlier novel, Cairo. Um, This book is dark, and it takes us into the afterlives of several characters from Cairo in a journey of despair and redemption. I cannot wait for you to discover this conversation. I hope in the intervening time you've had a chance to read the book. So today, join me, bonus episode, as we rediscover Chris Womersley's The Diplomat. Chris, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Welcome back to, we were discussing off air that um, this is a little bit full circle. You were one of my first conversations when I joined Final Draft almost 10 years ago. And uh, here we are again. Yeah. And the diplomat really kind of brings us round. I want to I want to set the scene or maybe more appropriately set the mood as you begin the diplomat in a state of hopelessness and despair after listing a litany of struggles your protagonist Edward de Graves informs us all I had to do now was survive the rest of my life which was no small order of course and this darkness and despair it I guess it may seem fitting I guess for for fans of Tom and his fate at the end of your novel Cairo. Tom was the young hero of Cairo who fell in with, amongst others, Edward and his wife Gertrude, as they committed the largest art heist Australia has ever seen. I thought this is as good a place as any for us to start. Cairo and The Diplomat, they're related, but they're very different novels. And I wondered what, to you, is the relationship between your two works? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I guess the immediate relationship is the fact that they're both named after buildings. Um, you know, Cairo, rather than being set in Egypt, is set in a, an apartment block in Fitzroy in Melbourne. Um, and the diplomat is the name not of a person, but of a motel in which the sort of the action of the diplomat, the novel um, sort of take uh, sort of ends up, the, I guess the finale takes place there. Um, so when I was writing Cairo, I, um, I mean, I'd always intended to write a series of novel based based on Cairo to a degree. Uh, I liked the idea that Cairo is narrated by, although it's, it's looking back in time, it's sort of essentially narrated by a guy who's pretty young, innocent, um, wet behind the ears, and he meets these people and has has it forms a very a, a sort of a certain opinion about them and. As a result, of course, the reader forms an opinion about these particular characters and. You know, Edward is this aloof, rather intimidating heroin addict slash art forger in 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 Cairo. Um, but when we meet him, I think in the diplomat, we enter his kind of own internal monologue, and rather than the sort of the confident, intimidating um, character that he may come across as in Cairo, we 
sort of realised that he's incredibly different to that. He's very self-conscious. He's full of self-loathing and doubt. Um, he feels that his life has irrevocably gone off the rails, that there's, you know, I guess it's sort of, it's a, sort of a middle-aged dilemma, even though he's only 37, I think, in 91 when the novel takes place. He's um, coming up, you know, the... The chickens have come home to roost to a degree for him and he's wondering whether the choices that he made as a younger man have been um, the correct ones, essentially, which is sort of perhaps one of the questions we all come up with at various stages of our lives. It's really striking to me that um, should he have survived, uh, Edward, be, Edward would be almost 70 now and um, uh, it would be very interesting, I think, to meet uh, Edward as as an old an man. An old man. And yeah, well, you never know your luck, Andrew. We'll sort of see. I will. I, I am planning to write another book in that sequence, although it won't be the next book I put out. But um, I, I suspect what I'll do is take on one of the other characters instead. I mean, I guess my sort of intention for a Cairo sequence was that all the novels, novels would be only sort of tangentially connected. They're not sequels in any sense. Um, and we may or may not find out the sort of the fate of various other characters. Um, so I guess they're sort of standalone things that are sort of tenuously connected by the fact that um, some of the characters first appeared in Cairo. And I think they'll all be named after um, places as well. It strikes me. I would. I would love to. And we've we've gone far too on a tangent. And readers may we're going to bring readers back to uh, yeah, the central narrative. Enough. But I would love to actually hear perhaps even a contemporary novel from a thirty-something Dora uh, reflecting uh, on on her parents and and those days. But um, I digress. It's not out of the question. Yeah, <laughs> that would be brilliant. Um, I like the way you, you talked about a sequence. You mm. you very deliberately said they're not really sequels, and I hesitated to use the word sequel because that, mm. that would imply, I guess, a more obvious through line. But I was interested in the way you framed uh, Edward both from Tom's point of view and then his own because perhaps the through line is that we do look different to people from all these different perspectives. And moving into Edward's world is is quite harrowing and he's stepping off the plane in Melbourne, mm. Edward seems resigned to his fate. He's lost everything. And um, I probably should have done this at the beginning. This seems an appropriate time, though, to give a content warning. We are going to discuss drug use. We're going to discuss mental health. I wondered, though, what compelled you about Edward in this state, this despair? And having conceived of this, how did you move forward? <laughs> yeah, good question. I mean, I sort of, I, I, I take it a stab as it were at writing, you know, the book that became The Diplomat at various stages in the last 10 years, basically, since finishing Cairo. And, you know, it'd been sort of bubbling away in the back of my mind as to, um, and originally I intended to set all of the novel probably in in London, in the East End. Um, and I sort of had my heart set on calling it Hackney, actually, or Dalston. Um, but it just, I just sort of couldn't, get a grip on it for whatever reason. And, um, and then finally sort of, I guess, towards the end of 2019, early 2020, I kind of hit on the voice for Edward. Um, and also, I mean, I think the thing that's appealing, if I can put it in that terms about Edward is that he is kind of at the end of his tether. He's got nothing to lose kind of thing. And I think that's makes him much more um, vulnerable which in turn makes him much more interesting and also empathetic. He's, he's kind of, um, in a way he's not, 
in a way, he's a little bit of a repellent character. Like he's, you know, he's very self-loathing. He's very sort of dismissive and, and snobbish about a lot of people around him. Um, you know, he's, some of his attitudes we make kind of a very sympathetic character because of that. Um, in, in, or not because of that, but in, in some senses. He's, um, and he's funny, you know. I think, he's, you know, one of the things that I've sort of appreciated since the book has, coming out, has come out is I was very worried that people would think it just a very bleak tale, but I do tend to think he's also quite funny in a sense, um, and that I think also stems from the fact that he is, he's got nothing to lose. He's at the end of his tether. He's... Um, and he saves, in a way, the, his worst criticisms for himself. You know, he doesn't let himself off the hook. Um, mm. I mean, in a way, he's a bit of a Raskolnikov, you know what I mean, in the, from Crime and Punishment, you know, a guy who's sort of compelling, even though he's perhaps um, slightly reprehensible as well. Or certainly Raskolnikov is extremely reprehensible, maybe Edward slightly less so. But um, And I think that's what makes a good character in a book really is someone who's not necessarily nice or, um, you know, ideologically sympathetic, but someone who's we're compelled to look at and find out what happens to them. I want to come to that, um, that repugnance, that repellent Mm. sense we have of Edward, because I was, I was actually continually struck by this. We, we get it most viscerally through Gertrude's family and, while that is understandable, I was continually struck by Edward's sense of loss. I mean, it, and it's no spoiler um, that Gertrude mm. has died. We open with that knowledge. Yeah. Um, and Edward has the ignominy of the knowledge that it happened while he was in rehab. So mm. the the means of her death and the means of his survival, the sort of in the worst possible way, star-crossed. Um, the line, tired, satisfied, beautiful, ruined. Edward suggests this as a title for a bi- biography of his life with Gertrude. And and I, I was really just, I was struck about by the fact that he is constantly the subject of this criticism. And mm-hmm. I, I wondered what you were looking for there because it, it redeemed him a little bit for me. I mean, yes, yes, he mm-hmm. hasn't been this in, he hasn't been the best husband, but he's also not as blameworthy, I think, as, as everyone sees him, including himself. Yeah, I think that's true, actually. Like he's sort of taken on this whole freight of guilt and um, responsibility that is in many ways not his to carry, you know what I mean? Like it's perfectly understandable that he would kind of feel guilt and remorse over not only Gertrude's death, but his, you know, the way his life in general has kind of uh, panned out. Um, But he hasn't been an evil person, I don't think, uh, in my sort of estimation anyway, even if he's been misguided and um, careless. I think he's kind of careless as much as anything else rather than kind of, um, willfully vindictive. And I think that that is um, a kind of redemptive quality to him. And also, I guess, as I was saying before, the fact that he he never lets himself off the hook. In fact, he's willingly puts himself on the hook repeatedly, you know, yes. um, rather than assuming that he is deserving of redemption, he sort of battles with the idea that maybe he's not, you know, and I think that's kind of... Um, well, I hope it is anyway, sort of an interesting position to, for him to be in for the reader, you know, who can obviously sympathise and empathise with somebody who is in that struggle. Did you did you see that as his, that behaviour 
as Edward ultimately, I guess, in some way striving for redemption, or was it simply that he was he was at a loss and he he had nothing else? Because I feel like it really his character hinges on that motivation. It does, and I think uh, you know certainly when I was started to write it, I wasn't quite sure how it was going to pan out, and I was very keen that it not become. Um, a sort of a simple tale of someone getting redeemed and doing, you know, doing the right thing and going off and living a happy life because that just is, is not kind of <laughs> interesting. I mean, what is interesting and good in real life is not interesting and good in fiction. Let's face it, um, because you know that would it would it would be just be boring. Um, so you know, you've got to kind of present people with extremities. I think to a degree, um, but certainly. Um, to talk about it as a book about somebody seeking redemption, I feel like is almost not quite accurate. I don't, I mean, I think Ed, cause Edward doesn't know what he's seeking. You know, mm-hmm. he's just trying to, in a way, he's just trying to survive this 24 hour or so period in his life. Um, and he's ill-equipped morally and sort of spiritually and, and psychologically to, to do that. And, and we sort of, I guess we sort of witness him as he flounders along during mm. that period, including flashbacks to his, you know, his time in London and so forth. Um, but yeah, he's not, um, whether he finds some kind of redemption or not is, is, is obviously up to the reader to decide. Um, I guess it's, you know, it's not really my part in, perhaps. I don't know. It's easy. It's, I'm glad you reminded me that it, it, the book does occur over some 24 odd hours at, um, allowing for the the flashbacks and i think a part of the the process of of my forgetting that is the way edward drags and contracts and speeds up time and this is a big part mm. of this is he has recently sobered up he has been mm. forced to sober up um it's part of the tragedy of why his life is in the place it is right now i wondered what you wanted the reader to make of Edward's both Edward's drug use and his sobriety, because you don't shy away from the drug use. You don't shy away from Edward's perspective that it was, it was pleasurable. It was, it, you know, so much of his life hinged on it. And while it was pleasurable, it also ruined him. And that sobriety, whilst it, it, you know, promises perhaps some longevity beyond his 37 years, it's also agonizing for him. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, it is, it's true that he sort of has his, you know, he acknowledges on the one hand that his, you know, his drug use and his his lifestyle and everything has contributed to, you know, Gertrude's death, but also the sort of the situation he's found himself in, which is basically as a sort of a failed artist and, and, you know, with no real sort of, not a lot in the way of prospects, but at the same time, he's doing battle with the fact that it was in a way the most, um, intensely alive he's been in a weird way. Um, I mean, I'm reminded of, look, this is, seems kind of a weird analogy to make, but I, want, I watched the the recent series that was on TV about Woodstock 99 and, uh, you know, it was this sort of mayhem event in, in 99 and, and um, it was all this sort of chaos and stuff and they interviewed a few people who'd been there. And the, they were sort it was of, the fire festival of its day. <laughs> yeah, and they had a sort of a dreadful time. But at the end they said, man, this was, it was the most fun I've ever had in my life. You know, like there was these two sort of beaters and butthead kind of guys and one of them just says, 22 years later, it's still the best fun I ever had, you know, even though it was hot and horrible and da-da-da. And I think there's an element of that um, sense with Edward that he is um, – He's constantly trying to reconcile his, 
you know, it's a physical need to want to take drugs as well as a sort of an emotional need, but it's also just a sort of a sense of a loss of um, a way of life that was, for him at least, interesting and um, sort of aesthetically slash spiritually pleasing in a sense. Like, you know, at one point he, he, he sort of details all the elements about drug addiction that sort of appeal to him. And it's like, it's not just the drugs, it's, you know, it's being a rock and roll star. It's listening to the Stones in 1972. It's uh, Baudelaire and, uh, you know, all this kind of, all these sort of cultural touchstones, if you like, that um, form the aesthetic umbrella under which his drug addiction has huddled for all these years, I guess, if I can put it like that. Um, so, yeah, he's constantly in flux. And as you say, there's this sort of idea of like, well, yes, I'm clean and it's all very well and good uh, and that's a good thing. But at the same time, like, what do I do now? Mm. Like, what do I do? Like, what do I what do I do on the week? What do, what do people do <laughs> um, on the weekend? They go shopping or something or like, fuck, I don't know. Because um, it's so, also, yeah. it's finding, it's also, it's finding your tribe. And Edward ruminates on that, that yes. he, he had a group, like as, as dysfunctional and destructive mm. as it may be, he had a group of people and now he is bereft. And it really brings up, I mean, it's a, it's an intense moral quandary that you present us with. Mm. If you know Edward feels he's he's had almost everything stolen from his life, and how does how does he move on, even if he now has a better chance of actually surviving to move on? Yeah, that's totally right. And the whole tribal thing is sort of very important. At one point, he sort of you know he sort of he's on a tram, you know, going past the Prince of Wales, and it's a hot night at the end of uh, December, and there's a bunch of you know, rock and rollers and whatever, hang, drinking on Fitzroy Street outside the Prince of Wales and St Kilda, and it's just like, oh man, there's my people, you know. But I can't, mm. I, I, I can't go and hang out with them anymore because it's too, you know, triggering. I guess might be the word or, or, or something. It's too seductive to me, and it would lead me down the road back again into you know using drugs and 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 all the rest of it, which I'm trying not to do. Um, so it's sort of, I think that is a big thing about the diplomat, this idea of, um, yeah, of people finding their tribe and then he's being forced to relinquish that tribe and, 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 and that's part of his sort of dilemma, if you like. You know, he's yes, he does have family at one point in the diplomat. He goes and visits his father and his brother, for example, but they're not especially close. They don't have a sort of especially close relationship. His mother has, has died some years before. So he's sort of, it's not like he has another family, whether it's biological or otherwise, to, to be enfolded by now. He's mm-hmm. kind of on his own. And, you know, and he sort of says that in the course of the book. He says, you know, I sort of, I made it a point to be a solitary kind of scornful person, but then now look what happened. I'm sort of stuck with myself and I don't quite know how to uh, go about the rest of my life, I guess. Mm. Now, the risk um, that the casual listener is is going to uh, accuse me of glorifying drug use here, uh, I will acknowledge that our readers are sophisticated people and they can separate art from life and also uh, appreciate some of these deeper discussions. Mm. I'm also going to change the tact, like a dramatic left-hand turn. <laughs> okay. with, with Cairo, 
you were, of course, well ahead of your time in 80s nostalgia. And now you are taking... <laughs> all you needed was a, a giant monster for the residents to fight. And you could have had uh, a Netflix series. Um, but yeah, the, I wish. The Diplomat. T- tell me about 1991. Because for so many, it's synonymous, I guess, with the explosion of grunge. For others, mm. it's perhaps this weird liminal space between the fall of the Soviet bloc and the, the nascent world to come that we now, I guess, occupy. But what was what was Melbourne in 1991 for you? Why did you want to go back there? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I certainly kind of, you know, I've lived in Melbourne sort of pretty much my entire life. And, and um, I have, in fact, some of the elements of the diplomat sort of cross over with my own life in the sense that I did live at 419 Brunswick Street, although it was probably about two years before um, the diplomat takes place, for example. But look, I guess, you know, part of the thing is um, it was a very... Um, fertile period in in sort of indie rock and rock and roll music and stuff. You know, anyone who kind of lived or, or visited Melbourne in that time who was interested in indie rock and all that kind of stuff would have seen gigs at Punter's Club and the Evelyn or gone down to the Prince of Wales. Um, so it was all very much... Um, a scene I was really part of, not that I was a musician or anything, but I used to see a ton of bands all around that. So it was sort of a very vibrant period. It's also inevitably anything pre-internet has a kind of, if you grew up in that time, um, as I did, uh, there's a kind of nostalgia to that, like this sort of sense of... um, things not being um, quite so available, especially if you were interested in, you know, what might have been termed in those days sort of alternative musics and stuff, you know, um, which involved, you know, standing around at Missing Link Records for hours, choosing how to spend your 10 bucks, you know, whether you're going to spend it on a sort of a birthday party EP or, uh, I don't know, a Laurie Anderson album or something like that. So it's sort of, so for me, there's a kind of, there is a, a sort of a degree of, nostalgia about that stuff um i mean certainly in cairo initially i was i was wanting to have um this never sort of made it into the book and i wasn't able to sort of press it into the narrative in any any kind of way this idea that um someone was had a question that was never answered throughout the entire book about Mm. some bit of trivia that these days you could literally find out in 10 seconds on your phone um but i certainly sort of remember the days um i don't know how old you are andrew but um when you know, if you if you were sort of a bunch of music nerds and you were desperate to find to sort of figure out just for your own kind of satisfaction who produced, I don't know, Sticky Fingers, you would have to ring somebody who knew. You know, you'd have to mm-hmm. kind of like ask everyone or, or dig out the album and look it up and stuff like that. And that's sort of, gee, I do sound like an old man yelling at a cloud, but you know, there's a degree of. Um, and that's part of Edward's sort of satisfaction, I guess, in some of his cultural touchstones as well, is that there's sort of a, there's a sense of um, exclusivity about them, you know, yeah. which probably, again, kind of ties into that tribal quality, you know, this sort of thing of like you're in the gang, you're part of a certain gang, an aesthetic gang, a cultural kind of or a subculture, I guess. I'm wondering, uh, I'm, ca- I'm casting my mind back. You made a comment earlier about... Uh, possibly it was a draft or even just a conception of the diplomat that might have been set entirely in London. And yeah. it would have been a very different novel. And I'm, I'm struck by Edward, um, Ed, some of Edward's reflections have that, that really kind of classic 
cultural cringe about Australia that I, I, mm. I almost feel like we're growing out of a little bit. We're feeling a little bit more comfortable in our own shoes. We're not constantly looking back to the, uh, in very big air quotes here, mother country. Yeah. Um, can you, can you trace a little bit of that back to that nostalgia that you're talking about? Because I think, yeah, 99, the 1990s and, and some of the way we were conceiving of ourselves as a nation and through our music and through other things uh, maybe take us away from that cultural cringe that Edward's expressing. Yeah, possibly. I mean, certainly, um, you know, there is a kind of a weird, there, there is a sort of a weird thing. And Edward at one point sort of says, you know, we, it, of the of a guess the cultural cringe, although he doesn't sort of refer to it as such, this sort of thing of constantly despising one's so-called superiors while at the same time craving their approval, you know, this sort of idea that um, as a sort of a colonial nation we are constantly um, attempting to be accepted by the world at large in a way that's a little bit infantile. Perhaps you know, and I mean, it's you know, it's an, and it, although it is also a rite of passage, um, particularly in the creative inter- industries. Although maybe it's across the board, this idea that you know, and you know, partly this is just a population thing. It's like, well, if you want to, if you're a, a band or an author or an art, a visual artist or something like that, um, the way to make money and have a career is not to do it in Australia. You know, you need to go elsewhere because that's where the audiences are, I mean, as much as anything else. It's true that there's a sort of a cultural cringe element to that, but there's also a degree of um, sheer practicality to, to the fact that you can potentially work overseas uh, and make a living, whereas here it's a little bit more of a struggle. Is that related to the art in the novel? Because I, I can't go without talking art with you in a novel like mm. The Diplomat, mm. uh, you know, following on from Cairo and, and just to set the scene for for readers who may not be familiar with Cairo, the the centre of the narrative and, and Edward and Gertrude's success that had propelled them to Europe from where Edward is now returning was copying the uh, Picasso's The Weeping Woman. Um, and it seems to have been a double-edged sword for them. They, they can't conceive of their own artistic success. And just what you were saying there about having to, you know, leave Australia for larger markets, Edward and Gertrude do, and yet the only success, I won't give away this particular mm. plot point of The Diplomat, the only success they can get is not through being their own authentic selves, but in, in a way kind of mumming European culture. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's sort of, you know, certainly Gertrude, you know, it, it's a stated aim of like, well, you know, I don't want to participate in the sort of artistic industrial complex because there's too many compromises to be done there. So, um why not just pretend to be somebody else and sell my work and at least make a living, you know? Um, so that's how they've sort of um, rationalised that, I suppose. Uh, you know, it's certainly Edward in one of his sort of memories of their time in London is like, you know, the idea, and, you know, and I, you know, I've lived in London myself, you know, and you, you go there, uh, certainly my experience was as a young man. And again, this was 1990 ish, 91. Um, going to London and it's a massive, scary city, you know, like it's a big, busy place, you know, Um, and if you've come from a a city like Melbourne or even Sydney, which is sort of bigger and busier, it can be quite intimidating and um, hard to crack, you know. These are tough nuts to crack, uh, I think, in terms of sort of making a living, especially if you're involved in the creative sort of world, I guess. Um, 
just because it is, it's just tougher. Yeah. I was really interested, I mentioned before, with Edward's despair and also mm. the way the way it continue he he heaps it on himself the way you continually heap it on him in the <laughs> i guess in the progress of the plot um and one thing that really that really struck me about this and i i had a sense that you were highlighting a, this a little bit for the reader in suffering through all this blame it felt like everyone was stealing a little of gertrude's agency like this sense that, I don't know, that somehow Gertrude wouldn't have come to this fate but for Edward's, you know, Machiavellian intentions. But, mm. of course, through flashback, through the way we understand Gertrude through Cairo, we know that's not who she was. If anything, if anything, she sort of, you know, jumped in to life with both feet. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, Edward kind of reflects that she was she was the the sort of the centre of gravity that he orbited around and not the other way. Yeah, that's actually a good point. I hadn't, in, in, in a way, I hadn't actually kind of considered that myself, this idea that, you know, I was very sort of careful, I think, in writing the book that it wasn't just, I mean, I'm, I'm aware that it's, Edward is looking at Gertrude through rose-coloured glasses to a degree, um, but at the same time I was very sort of careful to try and bring Gertrude to life as a real person as well. And, mm. you know, at one point Edward does sort of admit, he says, you know, she wasn't perfect, she could be a bitch and we fought and we had terrible times, but, you know, this is the way I choose to remember her because it's sort of, you know, this is that's why, you know, the, an obituary is kind of like, that's what you do, I guess. Um, but you're right. I think it's um, one of the things, it, well, certainly I guess probably I'm agreeing with you. I'm saying that, yes, it was very important to me that Gertrude's not just this sort of passive adjunct to Edward. Uh, and you're right, to a degree, she's acknowledged as the more talented of the pair. Um, and it, to a degree, the driving force behind some of their... Um, criminal forgeries because she's better at it and she's she gets a kind of thrill out of it you know there's a there's a sort of a thrill of i mean i sort of read a fair bit about forgery when i was writing cairo and there's a definite thrill for people in putting one over on the man you know this idea that you can fool the experts you can make a ton of money um if you're sort of good enough and you pick the right targets uh and without really putting yourself on the line to a degree, I suppose, in the way that you might do if you're trying to, you know, sell your own work in the marketplace or at least display it as your own work. So, um, you know, she's sort of hedging her bets to an extent, I think. There was a moment where Edward was reflecting on what, what had happened, that the time in London where where Gertrude had died and it suddenly became a very different novel to me, a novel that you didn't mm. write where I, I thought to myself, Chris is putting one over on us here. There is there is a, a story where Gertrude hasn't died and, in fact, she's gotten sick of Edward. Edward, feel, Edward was feeling particularly down on himself at this moment and she's somehow faked yeah. this. She's disappeared. <laughs> she, has, she has struck out on her own similar, in a similar way, I guess, to the ending of Cairo and I... I don't think that's what you've done. I don't think the next novel mm. is uh, Gertrude in double hiding. But <laughs> when I when I came to that conclusion, I, I got this sort of heavy sense of a little bit of, of what Edward was going through. And I, 
I thought that was that was really a big part of what you were showing us in the diplomat. You were showing us that despair and forcing us forcing us to sit with it. And it was it was uncomfortable. But as you as you noted before, you know, if if novels were just, you know, if they were perfect facsimiles of life, we probably wouldn't engage with them in the same way. No, and, and, yeah, and certainly, um, I mean, even Edward sort of more or less acknowledges in the course of the book that his his memories of Gertrude are an effort to kind of bring her back to life to a degree. Like he's sort of um, he's kind of summoning her through an incantation almost of of, of these memories, and um, so you know, although in the main part of the narrative Gertrude is dead she certainly kind of lives throughout not only his memories but in flashback and stuff so forth so so you know hopefully she sort of you know comes to life for the reader as well as 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 she does for Ger- uh, for Edward yeah and i think the way you've captured that for readers that know and readers that are about to discover that mm. that makes your ending even even a little bit more poignant <laughs> well who knows what happens at the ending really i guess i sort of um I uh, yeah I do sort of like a bit of ambiguity with my ending so uh, and I'm not quite I'm, I'm I'm sort of hedging my bets there a little bit in terms of um, whatever the next book may be in the sequence I guess as to what exactly happens to Edward I think yeah I think I was just also referring to the way you you kind of almost went a little full Finnegan's wake on us <laughs> what do you mean by that were you um the the the, the final lines are the yeah. opening lines. Yeah, yeah this, yeah. this sense that the book that you have in your hand was what. Um, yes, 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 yeah. yes. But um, but yeah, no, I um, I, 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 sort of got that. I was really, it was just this awful. I, you know, every time I put down the diplomat, I had, I should have ended the, I should have ended the interview and then told you this after the ending of the interview. But <laughs> every time I, I, I would put down the book because I had to go to sleep or work or whatever on earth I was doing, I, I just felt this urge to go and hug my wife and just sort of oh. say, you know, like, thank you for not, you know, disappearing from my life. It was just, that was yeah. the most tragic thing of it was the way this happened. And Edward obviously has some culpability, but also it, it happened in a way that he had no agency and control over. He he was forced out of Gertrude's life at the very moment he needed she needed him. And mm. it, it really highlighted the, the tragedy of what Edward was going through. Yeah, and as you sort of pointed out earlier, it's sort of it's not like he was forcing Gertrude to do any. You know, they were sort of a equal partners, if you like, in in whatever they were doing. Yeah, and he he then has to make the decision because the thing that sort of inexorably drove um, her to her death is he has to choose whether he stays away from that. Does he stay alive for that reason? <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's exactly right. Uh, Chris, this has been an absolutely terrific chat. I think I normally shy away from giving away too many plot points, but I think the thing that The Diplomat really hinges on is that that very close perspective you give us of Edward, and that is something the readers are going to go out and discover for themselves, and I hope they can come back to this chat and get a little insight on on what you were doing. Um, I'll give us a bit of an outro just to say goodbye to the, the conversation. I am speaking with Chris Womersley. His new novel is The Diplomat and it has has been an absolute ride. Thank you so much for joining me today on the show, Chris. 
It's been a total pleasure. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, dear listener. Thank you for joining us. And if you're tuning into these special bonus episodes, you are a special, special listener. Um, I really appreciate everyone who takes the time to discover more about Australian writing through the podcast. Thank you also to Chris. He's been a great friend of the show. We've had many a chat. And I'm going to just a, just a little apology to him that it has taken me so long to share this one on the podcast. Final draft records on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch wherever you are checking out this podcast episode. Give us a review. Let us know what you're thinking. Are you discovering new things? Do you want us to do something different? I am Andrew Popel. I am going to be back with more incredible conversations from Australian authors here on Final Draft. Until then, happy reading. Bye for now.